Okay, welcome. Good to see you all as well. Um, we're going to be looking at Matthew's genealogy. That's the, the new um, sermon series we're going through. We started last week and we'll continue on. Um, but before that, we're going to pray. Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us. And we do pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, in your great grace, you would open up the eyes of our hearts so that we would be able to see you most clearly. We pray that you would be able to open up our ears and our minds so that we would be able to know you and understand you. Help us to behold you in all your goodness and your glory. We pray that all that would happen through the power of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, give you that. Thank you. <clears throat> now, before we get into um, our sermon, you know, being the DIY, DIY warrior that I am, when um, our vacuum cleaner broke, Kay, my wife, said that she was going to buy a new vacuum cleaner. And I said, nope, I'll fix it. And the problem, it turned out to be uh, a broken wire at the swivel point of the head of the vacuum cleaner. Now, the only reason why I'm mentioning that is because that wire was broken, and it was in a hard-to-reach place, and it was only like an inch long, this connection. And so I had the task of trying to reconnect those two wires in this hard-to-reach place, and you can imagine it was a frustrating task. I tried somehow twisting the two wires together and taping it, used it, it worked for a while, and then it broke, pulled apart. I even bought a soldering iron kit and tried to put the two wires together, used it for a little bit, and then it broke. Basically, everything that I was doing, it was causing those ends, the wire ends, to get frayed. Now, can you just envision that? It's like these two wires, they're getting shorter and shorter. <laughs> And the problem that I'm facing is getting bigger and bigger. You know, I was feeling quite hopeless about that. It's like the solution was right there. I knew what I needed to do. I, I thought I could fix it, but I couldn't. And I wonder if our faith relationship with God can sometimes feel like that. It's like, I need help. I'm putting in all of this effort. Uh, but it seems like I'm just spinning my wheels. The problem feels like it just keeps getting bigger and bigger, and I'm feeling hopeless. There's a lot of things that we got to work out. Problems are complex. I got to come to understand myself better. I got to understand other people who might be involved in, in what I'm going through better. I need to understand my circumstances better. But what if the solution really was just like this one small little fix? You just need to, well, what is that? What if the solution is something attainable within reach and it's something familiar? And if you could just change your outlook on things, that gives us a hope that there are possibilities. Okay? That's, that's where we're going to go. I'm, like, I'm going to offer to you what that solution is. It's not going to be an easy fix, but it is a real fix and it will set you on the right path. What is it? Something that every believer whether you're entrenched in a problem or not, or if you're at real peace with God or not, it's something that all of us need to know and learn and go through. 
where it brings us back to the joy of our salvation. Okay? We'll see what that is. We're looking at the story of Rahab in Matthew's genealogy. She is a portrait of grace. One commentator calls her a trophy of God's grace. And in that, we will find the, the tweak, the one thing, the simple solution that will help us and get us on our way. Now, we'll get into um, the story of Rahab in just a moment, but before that, let us see uh, the Matthew, Matthew's genealogy. Matthew chapter 1, starting at verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Juth, and Obed, the father of Jesse. Okay? In the lead up to Christmas, we're looking at the genealogy of Jesus, particularly at the women that stand out um, in this genealogy. That is the context for the nativity scene that we're all familiar with, that we all will come to um, hear about later on. This is important context to keep in mind, this genealogy. Sounds boring, but there's a lot in here. And with Rahab, we're going to see that God, in his grace, uses the most unexpected people in the most unexpected ways for his unexpected purposes. So we're going to learn about the story of Rahab. But to do that, um, we need some context for that story as well. Okay? So the context to Rahab is that Israel has been freed from slavery in Egypt. Okay, we're back in the Old Testament. All thanks to Joseph. God has been you know, placing Joseph in Egypt, right? Last week, we learned from Genesis 38 that not only was Israel as a people preserved, but the line of Judah was preserved by Tamar. She was the first woman that we looked at in the genealogy. They're free from slavery in Egypt. They're about to enter the promised land. Okay, you remember the promised land and the covenant promises that God made with Abraham? Abraham had to believe that Yahweh the Lord... <clears throat> would give land, nation, and blessing. Those are the covenant promises from Genesis chapter 12. And so Abraham and his descendants, they had a whole new purpose in life, to live by faith and God's grace. His descendants became a nation. They wandered in the wilderness for 40 years after being freed from slavery. Moses has died. Joshua is now the leader of God's people. They're about to enter in the land, which means they have to go to war. They're about to enter this phase in Israel's history called the conquest into the land of promise. And to get into that land, they need to do a reconnaissance mission. And so Joshua sends out two spies. And that brings us to our passage for today, Joshua chapter 2, the story of Rahab. Here we go. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you and who entered your house, for they have come out to search all the land. 
But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she brought them um, up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion and Nog, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord, your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother and brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, said to her, our life were yours even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, Go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward you may go your way. The men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And you shall gather into your house your father and your mother, your brothers and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of the house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your works, so be it. Then she sent them away, and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. They departed and went into the hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned, and the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. Then the two men returned. They came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua the son of Nun and told him all that had happened. And they said to Joshua, Truly, the Lord has given all the land into our hands, and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I hope that you found that to be a riveting story. We'll go through it again, and then we'll work out its meaning, and then see how it applies to us. So it starts with these two spies. For some strange reason, they go to a prostitute's house. The king of Jericho had his own spies and saw these two um, Israelites go into that house. And so they called um, Rahab and demanded these spies. Somehow God brought these spies there, and it put Rahab in this very dangerous situation. <clears throat> Verse 4, what would Rahab do? But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, true, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for they will overtake, you will overtake them. Rahab here, she tells this half-truth. We call that a whole lie, Right? Yes, they were with me, but at, but at night they left. Rahab had hidden them. 
She sent the men of Jericho on this wild goose chase, and what a close call. It worked. But there was another problem. What was it? It wasn't that she lied. Verse 6. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. What was the problem? The gates were shut. The, guy, the two spies, they couldn't get out. How are they going to leave the city? So the heat is still on. Rahab has to continue to risk herself to keep these men safe. The men aren't in the clear yet, and so you can imagine they're pretty amped up, very stressed. Maybe they regretted going to this prostitute's house. We don't know. But then what happens? Well, Rahab has this captive audience, basically, and so she sees that this is her opportunity to speak to them words that these two men found shocking. Verse 8. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. Rahab spoke about the mighty acts of the Lord. And what we're going to see is that she will continue to speak about the majesty of the Lord and the mercy of the Lord. Okay, so those are the three observations that I take from a commentator, and that's what we're going to return to at the end so that we start to get a clearer view of, how, of what all this means and how it's going to help us. The people of the land, they heard about Yahweh, the Lord, and it put them in great fear. It's as if they knew what was going to behold them, what their future was all about. They're going to lose their land from this mighty Lord. She continued speaking about the majesty of the Lord. Verse 11, and as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord, your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Rahab was able to acknowledge that the Lord was the God of all gods, Lord over all, heaven and earth. What that meant was that he wasn't like the pagan gods. He surpassed them all in his majesty. Now, when these two spies heard this, how do you think they felt? They would have been so amazed and shocked, relieved. It was so helpful for them to hear. This would have given them courage and hope for their mission. They would have thought at this point, oh yeah, that's right, the Lord Yahweh, he's our Lord. He's my Lord. And what a beautiful irony right there that God would use this questionable Gentile woman to remind Israel of their own God. And for Rahab, well, for her, this was, at, at this moment, her opportunity to do what any and all who recognize the God who is mighty and majestic to do. What did she do? Verse 12. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you will also deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. You know, Rahab, you can just imagine in her situation, she has nothing to lose. All is already lost. And so she just asks for it all. Save me, save my father and the whole family. Spare us all. 
Verse 14, and the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. you got to imagine all this relief from Rahab. Yes, but also relief from these men. We will help you. We swear. Just get us through this. And they knew that they weren't out of the woods just yet. Verse 20. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away, and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. See, for these spies, it wasn't clear if we could trust um, Rahab. So they laid out the terms. Don't say anything. We get away. We'll remember you. That scarlet cord hanging out the window. That was a sign to let Israel's army know that that was identifying Rahab and her family. <clears throat> so verse 15. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And the two spies escaped. With Rahab's help, reported back to Joshua. What did they say? Verse 23. Then the two men returned. They came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun. They told him all that had happened to them. They said to Joshua, truly the Lord has given this land into our hands. And also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. There we have it. From Rahab's words and her deeds, she saved these two men so that they could report to Joshua what they had to learn for themselves in a very real way. That the Lord, he was mighty. He was majestic, and he was merciful. And that way, Israel could continue on the next mission and take the city of Jericho. God, in his grace, would give Israel the courage that they needed. And for this, the Bible would uphold Rahab, this woman's actions. She was a beautiful portrait of grace. Let me just summarize. God used this prostitute through the questionable activity of the spies, for the downfall of her people, the salvation of this Gentile woman's family, so that Israel could carry on with its purpose of claiming the promises of God. Eventually, to the point where they would even bear the Messiah. God saves the most unexpected people in the most unexpected ways for his most unexpected purposes. And when we start to see this God, the God of grace, and we start to understand that for ourselves, what does that do for us? Well, that starts to give us some hope, and it restores the joy of our salvation. This is it. This is the simple solution for all of us. Seeing and understanding the God of grace that has saved you. That's the one thing that we just need to do. See and understand the God of grace that has saved you. That will give us hope. It will restore the joy of our salvation. But it will come in very unexpected ways. So let me just point out and explain more what it means to see and understand the God of grace that has saved you. Understanding the grace that saves is seeing the mighty God and fearing him rightly. Okay? Understanding um, this grace is seeing the mighty God and fearing him rightly. 
All of our conversion stories as believers, they vary as wide as the sea. And yet what happens to every one of us who believes is that all of us will go through this strange feeling at some point where we are awakened to the face of God. We see the mighty God, we know that we're in his presence, and we fear him rightly. Just go back to Rahab's confession of who God is. Verse 9, Joshua 2.9. She said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. What you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion and Og, who you devoted to destruction. All the peoples of the lands, they heard about the God of Israel, Yahweh, how he was plowing through the seas and plowing right towards them. Hearing about Yahweh and seeing Israel, it put all these people in fear. But it was with Rahab that God's grace was at work so that out of everyone, she was the one who feared God rightly. Everyone else melted. They were undone. They were unable to process and respond properly based on who Yahweh was. Rahab had a right fear of the Lord. And how you know that is because she feared the Lord more than anything else. Now you may be thinking, wait, talk about fearing the Lord. That sounds a little uncomfortable for me. And then you might remember a Bible verse saying, Love drives out fear. And you're thinking, yeah, there's no fear in, in this relationship with God. Love drives out wrong fear. It's the kind of wrong fear where you want to stay away from the Lord. That's like the Adam and Eve kind of fear in the garden when they hid from the Lord. That's the wrong fear. But God's love invites us in so that we realize that he is God and he is far bigger and more mighty than I ever imagined and I respond in right fear. How did Rahab show this right fear? Well, she feared the Lord more than she feared her own king, the king of Jericho. What that really means is she had to risk her life by telling the lie before the king. That's a life-threatening situation, and she feared the Lord. Now, maybe you're not, feared, you're, you're not confused about fearing the Lord. You understand that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but you can't seem to get past the lie that she told, right? Well, if that's the case, well, you, there might be something missing in your calculations because the New Testament mentions Rahab twice and upholds her as a model of faith. Just listen to how James considers Rahab in the New Testament. James 2, 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? You see, the comparison between Rahab and Abraham, Rahab's just like Abraham in doing something very difficult, 
Abraham, he had to face the fear of killing his own son. Rahab had to face the fear of betraying her king, her country, and all her people. Getting risk, um, risking getting caught and paying the consequences. It's because she saw the mighty God and feared him rightly. You know, for us, obedience, that doesn't bring us to the Lord. It is a right fear that trusts the Lord. That's what draws you into him. That's what God wants. It's God in his grace. He's the one who covenanted with us while we were still sinners. While we were hostile and hopeless before God, that's when God awakened us to the sheer reality of his holy presence. That's what's going on in Rahab's story. Right fear. I remember the testimony of Rosaria Butterfield. I've mentioned her story before. She was a lesbian woman's studies professor at Syracuse University. She became a Christian. And what I remember about her story was how she described her conversion. She said it was a train wreck. And you can imagine how that would have been a train wreck for someone like her. Quite the lifestyle shift that she had to make. But she met the God of the Bible, and she feared him more than all that she would lose, all that she would be inconvenienced by, all that she would be scorned by from friends and colleagues. A right, reverent fear of the Lord is fear of a God who is far mightier than you and me. We're blown away by this God because he doesn't turn us away, and so we don't turn away. But it is hard. It's hard for all of us to be able to hand over our lives to God where he takes control. But that's rightly fearing him, even over your own fears of loss of control. And if you're a believer, well, that has happened to you, hasn't it? I mean, what sweet grace it was for God to calm our fears where he took the lead and we said yes. And that grace that saves is the same grace that keeps us fearing the Lord over our ongoing fears in our lives that would always hold us back. And when that happens, when that starts to happen more and more in our lives as we apply faith and we recognize who God is, that's the, the joy of salvation bubbling up. That's when you start to see that there's hope. The mighty God. Secondly, when we behold the majesty of God, that he doesn't turn us away, in a strange way, it draws us near. Look at verse 11. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Hearts melt, no spirits left. These people are defeated, hopeless. But for Rahab, she saw this God. She saw that he was the creator of all things, overruling other gods, and Rahab knew what all, all of that meant. This God was not a God to be trifled with. She wasn't, he wasn't just one of many gods that she could believe. He was the God of heaven and earth, and she was able to make that confession. The most unlikely people can make the greatest confessions. And for Rahab, she realized that her life 
was hopeless, not just in terms of her people and their future, but even for herself personally. She didn't have her own family. Father, mother, brothers, sisters, yes. Husband, children, no. She didn't say, oh, well, I might as well give my life over to God, you know, weighing up the options here. No. I mean, she recognized that she had an opportunity as she met this God. What, how could this God somehow reach her? We don't know how or why she met the, the spies. But whatever the case, God sovereignly appointed this meeting where these spies would meet Rahab. And Rahab would understand what the situation was like. This is grace. She knew she was accountable to God. She could not run away from him, but he came to her. God found her. Isn't that all of our stories? It's it's a fearful thing to have to realize there is one God that we are all answerable to, that he is the exclusive God, and he demands exclusive loyalty. And so... Of course, all of us, we're going to have these hesitations and doubts and concerns about all the things that we have to give up and all the things that we have to submit to. It's hard to be confronted by that, but know this from God's side. Our struggles to submit and to trust, that is not something unique or terribly problematic for the God of majesty. See, the truth is, You are not alone in that kind of wrestling. We're all there. And the beauty is that the God who is full of grace is full of grace and truth. And he would compel us to believe out of his kindness, overturning our unbelieving hearts. For us, conversion may have been a train wreck. It may not have been a train wreck. But it's never an easy thing when when you get down to it. It's not like a a pleasant stroll down a garden path in the full bloom of spring. (laughs) You can experience that, but there comes a point where you have to face up to the truth too. We need God in his kindness to regenerate our souls, our spirits. Born again, that's the language, right? That's what Nicodemus had to go through in John chapter 3. But whether you're religious or you're not religious, like the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4 that we read about, Religion or religious or irreligious, both need Jesus. There's this hopelessness that we all have to feel when we finally face God. Where we don't turn away, though, but we actually stay with him in the discomfort and the struggle. Our statement of faith says that is called irresistible grace. Where we would need God to work in us like Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman, where we would say no to God, I'm not sure, God, and he would say yes. That's how much we don't deserve it, but that's God's kindness that he gets us to believe, and without it, we would never believe. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. I wonder if you're starting to remember the joy of your salvation, what God did for us. Are you feeling Relief, gratitude, joy. If you do, then thirdly, you will realize that you are in the hands of a merciful God. 
And so you'll ask for mercy. That's verse 12. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you will also deal kindly with me, my father's house, and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and my brother, my mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. Right there. That is conversion. I need saving. Please save me. We ask for mercy because, like Rahab, she recognized that she was not rightly aligned with the God of Israel, and now she has the chance. She was not rightly aligned. She was not righteous. And in the midst of her unrighteousness, God moved her spirit so that she could recognize God's kindness. Not as a scary God, but as a God who could be merciful. She had no ground on which to stand. She didn't know what the spies would say. All she could do was plead with them. And these spies would give her the hope and the mercy of God. Hang this scarlet cord out your window and let us down. And for that, God adopted this shady Gentile woman into the covenant with Israel. A Gentile mistress, no real prospect of her own biological family, would become the ancestress of Jesus and a real spiritual family. You know, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, what we're going through little by little, unfolding it, seeing the different stories of God's grace, that's a history of God's grace to his people throughout the ages. So if you know this God, then for all of us, we know that our only response to God is to ask for mercy. That's how he has saved us, and that's how he continues to uphold us. So that's leading us to application. Do you know this God of all grace, the God who is merciful, majestic, and mighty? If you're not a believer among us, well, then just like Rahab, recognize who the God of the Bible is. Recognize the scarlet cord that we would need to put out to be able to be saved. In our case, it's not a scarlet cord. It's simply the blood of the cross. Trust in Jesus. Recognize that he is God's grace to us. In our programs that you have here, there's a communion liturgy. There's a box, two prayers, those searching for the truth, prayers of belief. This is a time where hopefully God in his grace and kindness has opened up your eyes so that you could see him and that you would do business with him. These are words to guide you. But if you are a believer, how can we meet the God of all grace? Because that right there, the simple solution, it's not an easy solution, but that is the answer. To meet the God of all grace, where he gives us, he reminds us of the joy of our salvation and restores hope. How do you meet this God of all grace? to start opening up your life and giving you possibilities? Serve someone. Serve others, and when you do, though, remember that God has served you. That's why you've been changed and you're willing to serve others, right? Out of obedience. Now, I say that it's very simple. Many Christians already know this, and we're doing it, but... When we do that, what are we actually thinking? Do we start to think, oh, yeah, I'm pretty good. (laughs) 
Do we actually start to take credit for them, for the good things that we do? Instead, would we think with every good deed, every act of service, think, ah, this is what God did for me. That's why I can do this for others. See, that's the flow that we have to have. And it does two things for us. First, it reminds us that God did save us. He gave us a new life. Our good works are real, tangible evidence of it so that our salvation is real. We can own that. We can say, yes, I am doing these good works. But second, it prevents us from thinking, I can take the credit for it. That can happen. It can happen very subtly. That's why we need to remember the God of all grace, how he saved me. Recall that it was God, make it about him, his grace shown to me, and his grace that continues to work through me. When we can start to do that and think that way and actually believe faith that way, live it out, live it out that's when we remember God, we come back to the joy of our salvation. That's when we, have, we start to have hope to be able to live rightly for God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are indeed the God of all grace. What amazing grace that would save a wretch like me and you, all of us here. We rejoice in our salvation. We're thankful for it. We take great relief in it, and we want to live according to it. So we pray, O oh God, that you, by your Holy Spirit, would just remind us of what you have done to us done for us, how Jesus, you are the grace of God who has appeared in our lives. You are now the Lord that we live for and follow, that we trust and we obey. We thank you, O God, for our salvation. We pray that it would indeed give us great hope to live for you. It would help us to live and be able to apply our lives so we can do the good works that you've called us and created for us to do. We praise you and we give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.